I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to Colossians chapter number 1. The book of Colossians chapter number 1. And I want to read a passage of Scripture uh, that deals with the person of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, amazing chapter about the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 9. Colossians 1, verse number 9. For this calls we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, According to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace. Through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You know, the Bible in the New Testament gives us some amazing passages of Scripture that highlight just who he was. One of the great, uh, what, what the, the Bible students would call a Christological passage. A passage of scripture that focuses on the identity and the description of the person whose birth we just celebrated this past week. Colossians chapter number one in your Bibles this morning. There is a poem that was written. I don't even know who authored it, but every year at Christmas time, I, I sometime during the Christmas season, I read this poem uh, during a service, it's called One Solitary Life, and it's about the person of Jesus Christ. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. Or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. 
He did none of those things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and sent through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in the borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as that one solitary life. No one surpasses the person of Jesus Christ. He is amazing in every regard. And from the day he walked on this earth to this very day today, people ask the question, who is this person from history? Who is Jesus Christ? And we dare not leave that question up to the fickle contemporary man who likes to remake Jesus into something that fits his conception of life. Because such inaccurate uh, interpretations have given us Jesus the revolutionary, or Jesus the deliverer, or Jesus the philosopher. As man remakes Jesus into what he thinks Jesus is, or a Jesus that fits into his way of thinking, or his life. Now, we don't, we don't leave such an important question up to contemporary man to answer. We turn to the book that was written about him to learn who is Jesus Christ. That, that question plagued him on his earthly ministry. After he had gone out and begun to preach, he visited his, his hometown, Nazareth. And, and there in Nazareth, as he preached, as he as he performed acts of ministry, the people he grew up with, his own townspeople, said, who is this? I said, isn't this Joseph, the carpenter's boy? Who is he? Later, he was with his disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee when a storm kicked up. And those experienced, weathered fishermen who had sailed the Sea of Galilee throughout their lives were afraid of death because this was a storm of all storms. And, and Jesus was sound asleep in the boat. And they woke Jesus Christ up. And Jesus roused from sleep and he looked out and he spoke a word. And all of a sudden, those boisterous winds died. Those, those roaring waves laid down. And the disciples looked at him and they said amongst themselves, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Oh, that question has been around for a couple of thousand years. Who did we just celebrate the birth of? Who was?
was that baby in a manger of hay? Who is Jesus Christ? What a question. A question that must be answered from the pages of Scripture, not the minds of modern man. We've gone through the season where he is often in great focus. As a matter of fact, it's not unusual during this season of the year for there to be controversy about him. And Merry Christmas becomes Happy Holidays. Nativity scenes become Santa and the reindeer. Shopping malls, sometimes, some years, the political thing kind of goes up and down and but in some years, shopping malls will not put out any advertisement or any display or decoration that has the word Christmas in it. They only advertise season's greetings. Who is this person that's so controversial? The historians for, for many years, even in secular universities, divided history between B.C. and A.D., between before the birth of Jesus Christ and Anno Dominic in the year of our Lord, in the 2019th year of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone that ever wrote down 2019 was acknowledging the person of Jesus Christ who split history into before him and after him. Every person that wrote a check or that wrote down a date Acknowledge the reality of the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Oh, but the modern day historians have a better way of doing that. And now they've got BCE, before the common era, because they refuse to acknowledge the person of Jesus Christ. Why is he so controversial? Who is he anyway? Well, Colossians chapter 1 is a great place to turn to, to learn the answer to that question. The portion of our Bible that we call the book of Colossians or the epistle, the letter of Paul the Apostle to the Colossians was God's answer to the question, who is Jesus? You see, at that time, there were some there was some false ideas of the person of Jesus Christ that were going across the, the uh, Europe, across the, the Asia, the places where the gospel had been preached. And, and there were great questions about who Jesus Christ is. And, and so those who became known, we, we call them today, looking back and describing them, we call it Gnosticism. We call them the Gnostics. They were, the word Gnostic comes from the word knowledge. And they had a superior knowledge and they viewed Jesus and they portrayed Jesus as a created supernatural being that was the first created one. And so the person of Jesus Christ ceased to be God incarnate in human flesh and became like an angel. Kind of like what the Mormons and the cults often teach about the person of Jesus Christ. And so God sent him sent a letter to the church at Colossus, which was kind of a, an area where this idea and this teaching was so, so uh, influential amongst people. And many Christian people were being led astray by false theology, by false doctrine. And so God sent them through the Apostle Paul, known as the great missionary, but he didn't start this church. He didn't go to Colossus. He didn't start the church that he's writing 
It was started as a result of one of his converts, Epaphras, who got saved in Ephesus. In Ephesus, at the great revival in Ephesus, on Paul's second missionary journey, and Epaphras had gone up the Lycus River Valley and evangelized cities like Heriopolis and Lycus and Colossus and, and, and Laodicea. And, and here a church had been planted, the church in the city of Colossae. And now God is using Paul to write them a letter to define for them, to forever put it in words, who is Jesus Christ? And so in the opening chapter of this letter, the Apostle Paul was sharing with these people whom he had never met how he was praying for them. He shared with them what he had been praying as he prayed for them. He said to them in verse number 9 that since he had heard about them, he'd been praying for them. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He'd been praying that they might know God. That they might have knowledge of God and God's will. A knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. He also prayed for them in verse number 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. He prayed that they would live a life that would be pleasing to, to God. Even a life that would be worthy of the price God paid to save them. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That they might walk worthy of the God who saved them. Pleasing Him with the way they live. He even described what kind of a life that is. He said that that kind of a life is fruitful. It's increasing in knowledge. It's strengthened. It's it's giving thanks. He, He gave four descriptions of what it is to live a life that pleases God. And so as he shares with them what he had been praying as he prayed for them and praying that they would be a thankful people, verse number 12, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of, and then he said it, his dear son. And as that description of Jesus Christ, his dear son, rolled off the tip of his ink pen, his heart caught fire. Who is this, his dear son? Who is this Jesus Christ? And he just, description after description after description, began to tumble through his heart and mind and onto paper. As he described in one of the greatest passages of the New Testament, he described who Jesus Christ is. You know, our world needs to know who he is. People in South Riding need to know who he is. Everyone needs to know who Jesus Christ is. Not from the fickle imagination of contemporary man, but from the description of the Word of God. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, he he, he summarized it in verse number 19. Look at verse number 19. Verse number 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And then in chapter 2, and in verse number, uh, chapter 2, verse number 3, we read, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom 
are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then it kind of culminates in verse number 9, chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ is the fullness of all that is God. Jesus Christ is the one in whom is hid all the wisdom and knowledge of the universe. Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. Mystery of all mysteries. Jesus Christ is God in a human body. Well, those are just kind of the conclusions. Those are, are kind of the, the uh, where it all went to. But what builds, what are the descriptions that build to that conclusion that Jesus is all the fullness of the Godhead, that in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that He is the fullness of God? What is it that builds that case for that conclusion? Well, there are some titles that we could give him from this passage. Look at verse number 14. Verse number 14, we have the first title. He is the Lamb of God. Verse number 14, in whom? And interesting, the first thing that grabbed Paul's heart when Paul said, His dear son, the first thing that captivated the heart of the Apostle Paul, thinking about Jesus Christ, is his blood. Whoa! In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. Immediately our minds race to the river of blood that has flown through the history of humanity as a result of man's rebellion against his creator. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we see an animal. The carcass of an animal. Skinned. And its blood poured out to cover the nakedness of a man and a woman who'd rebelled against their Creator. That was the beginning of the river of blood that has poured out through the history of humanity. We read about it from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, all the way through the Bible. Animal after animal after animal who gave its life as an innocent. As a picture of the horrendous cost of man's rebellion. You see, sin is a problem of momentous proportion. Sin brings guilt to the human soul. Sin brings despair to the human mind. Sin brings, uh, requires judgment and punishment meted out by the Creator. Sin's judgment is death. From Genesis 3 throughout the Bible... Sin's judgment resulted, God's judgment resulted in the death by the pouring out of life's blood in a vicious taking of that life by the shedding of blood. You see, a problem of such enormous proportion can only be remedied by a solution of enormous proportion. And that solution was substitution, an innocent must suffer in the place of the guilty. The moment the Apostle Paul thought the word Son of God, his heart leapt immediately to Calvary, where Jesus Christ 
became the substitute for guilty sinners. And his life's blood was horrendously poured out in agony and pain. It all began with that first animal, and it culminated in the Lamb of God. John 1.29, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the first title has to do with the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the member of the Godhead that was willing to pay the horrendous price by becoming human, representing humanity, shouldering the guilt of every human being, and then paying the ultimate price of the horrendous shedding of His blood in death. As a substitute for mankind. Well, what does this do for us? Well, verse number, verse number 14 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood. And immediately our mind, when we see that word redemption, uh, the mind of a person who knows English and knows the, the history of the English language, the mind immediately uh, jumps to the image of slavery. Slavery. That awful picture of a slave on an auction block being sold to the highest bidder. A bitter, where, where people are sold, families are destroyed, and a person's future becomes a nightmare. We think of, of slavery and the redemption of a slave. That horrible picture gives us the most glorious truth. Because as I stepped onto the platform to be bit off to the highest bidder, as a slave of my sin nature and as a slave to the judgment of sin, God lifted up His bid card. The price, the value of that bid card was the blood of His own dear Son. And no one could outbid Him. Nobody could come up with a higher dollar value. And He bid to purchase me. And I was redeemed by the blood of his own dear son, purchased from the slave market of sin, that I might be redeemed through his blood. Set free from sin, but not set free to myself. I was bid by Jesus Christ, and he bought me. And instead of being a slave to sin, I became a slave to Jesus Christ. Oh, but he's a much better master. He's a much better master. Romans 7 tells us that we have been brought under his law. And he's a much better master than the master I would have served for all eternity as a slave to sin. What does this freedom from the sin bring to me? Well, our text says that we were redeemed through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Ah, This freedom from sin brought to me the freedom of guilt. Oh, I'll... I'll never forget it as long as I live. I still remember kneeling on my knees as a teenager, reaching out from the depths of my heart and inviting God to come into my life and rescue me from the sin of, that dominated my heart and life. And it was as if the guilt of sin just rolled off my back. And I knew I was forgiven, eternally forgiven, by my God, Jesus Christ. I'd been redeemed by the blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 
What is what does this mean to you? So what? Two thousand years ago, Jesus died on the cross. He's the Lamb of God. What does that mean to you? Well, it means to you that you have the opportunity to be free from guilt and the condemnation of sin. You have the freedom and opportunity to be born again. You have the freedom and opportunity to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is first and foremost the Lamb of God. But this, this passage goes on. And, and in, verse number, in verse number 15, the Bible says that, that who is the image of the invisible God? He's the image of God. Eternal God is invisible to man's natural eye. He doesn't have shape. He doesn't have a body. We can't see him. We, we, how do you know an invisible being that you can't see? How can we know God? How can you know your creator? How can he become meaningful to you in your life? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of God. What does that mean? He's the image of God. That word image is an amazing, amazing word study. You may want to trace through sometime and study that word and, and, and all the, the ramifications of that word. Let me just say in a, in a, in a, in a couple of sentences, that, mean, that word means that Jesus Christ is the exact replication. He's the exact description. He's the exact presentation. He's the exact manifestation of an invisible God. He's an invisible God made visible. He's an invisible God that I can now know and understand because He became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 describes Him. And in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus Christ came and exegeted God, displayed God, defined God, Showed us God, the invisible God, the Creator. Jesus Christ. You want to know God? Read the Gospels. You want to know God? Study the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke in time past in sundry ways, in different manners, by different means. But in these last times, He hath spoken unto us by His Son. The full and final revelation of the character and nature and person of God is Jesus Christ. And if you want to know God, get to know Jesus Christ. That's where you discover who God is. Jesus Christ showed us the wrath of God when he took those cords and made them into a rope and drove the money changers out of his house of prayer. Jesus Christ described the wrath of God in Mark 7 when he dealt with religious tradition that was sending people to hell. Jesus defined and described the wrath of God in Matthew 23 when he dealt with the religious hypocrisy. A religion that requires of others what the leaders don't even do themselves. And Jesus Christ spoke out in in very severe language and revealed the wrath of God. But he also revealed the love of God as the soldiers nailed his body to a cross and he cried out, Father, they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. God, would you forgive them? 
Jesus Christ described and defined the love of God when he turned to the thief hanging on the cross, the murderous thief on the cross beside him. And he said, today you and I will be in paradise. Yes, Jesus Christ is the image of an invisible God. And the world will never know God outside of Jesus Christ. They'll never know God until they study the life, the teachings, and the person of Jesus Christ. Because He is God manifest to man. Who is this Jesus Christ? Well, He's the Lamb of God slain. For our sins. He's the, he's the image of God who, who enables us to know God. What does that mean to me as a person now and approaching 2020? It means that I can know God. That is so huge. I can know God through Jesus Christ. But there's a third title. We find it in verse number 15. In the middle of the verse, he's described as the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. What does that describe for us? What does that tell us about the person of Jesus Christ? It tells us that Jesus Christ owns everything that is. He is the firstborn, not first created. That's a different word. He's not the first created. Like the, 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 so many of the cults, he's the firstborn. That's a word of heritage. That, that's the word of ownership. That's the word of, of the heir of all. He is the firstborn. He's the, he's the heir of all that exists. How do we know he's the owner of everything that exists? We know he's the owner of everything that exists because, number one, he's the creator. He's the creator of everything. Verse 6 says, for by him were all things created. Jesus Christ created everything that exists. It was, it was all visible, invisible. Earth, heaven, thrones, principalities, powers, all created by him. He's the agent that created it all. And for him, he's the goal for which it was all created. He's the owner of everything because he's the creator of everything. And he created everything that exists for his glory, not for the glory of his creation. Man always wants to glorify the creation. Romans 1 tells us that man exchanges the glory of God for the glory of the creation that God created. And instead of glorifying the God who created it, we glorify the creation that was created. That was where humanism came from. Secular humanism is the worship of the creation rather than the worship of the creator who created the creation. And all of a sudden, man becomes the God who is worshipped. Humanism. The worship of man. Because man is the highest evolved part of the creative order. And so we'll worship the creation. That's, that's what Romans 1 warns us against. But our Bible tells us something different. Our Bible tells us that Jesus Christ created everything that exists for His glory, not for the glory of the creation. Now, it's fun to glory, glory, glory in the creation. We love to... We, we were up in, in Canada this past summer with some of the family and stood there and watched 
the magnificent Niagara Falls. We went to the U.S. side. We went to the Canadian side. We rode. Even got my wife in a boat. Can you believe it? We got my wife in a boat. That's a miracle in itself. Not just any old boat, though. A boat that's heading straight for Niagara Falls. I got pictures to prove she was in the boat. I shouldn't say I got or we got. I should say Greg got because he bought the ticket and made her feel bad if she didn't go. It's neat to glorify the to, to glory in the creation, to see the waterfalls, to see the magnificent beaches and mountains and splendor of a created world that God brought into existence. But it wasn't here. It wasn't put here for us to glory in the creation. It was put here for us to say, wow, what a creator who created that. What an amazing God who made that. Jesus Christ is the owner of everything that exists. He brought it all into reality. And all of it shouts to his glory as a magnificent and an amazing God. He is the creator. Not only is he the creator, but verse 17 says that he was before it ever existed. He's the preexistent one. He is before all things. He is before all things. That means God is transcendent. God transcends his creative works. God existed before anything that he did existed. He was before all things. That's why we love Micah 5.2 It's the Christmas story so much. Micah 5.2 that says, Bethlehem, you're just a little old yeah, dime a dozen village in, in Israel. But yet Bethlehem, out of thee shall come. He who shall be ruler of my people, Israel. He who is from of old, from everlasting. That baby born in Bethlehem that will be the king of Israel. Has no starting place. He has been around from of old, from everlasting. He's the pre existent one. Before there was anything created, Jesus Christ was in existence. He's the owner of all that he brought into existence. And verse number 17 ends by telling us he's the sustainer. By him all things consist. He holds it all together. He holds it all together. What does this mean to us? What this means to us is that God owns everything that your eyes can see and your ears can hear. He owns everything and everything that exists is for his glory. It's not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about your goals. It's about Jesus Christ. Because Everything belongs to him. And he brought it into existence to glorify him. What does that mean to me? That means to me that everything I do in life, I have to do through the filter of God. Is this what you want? Will this bring more glory to you? Does this lift you up and praise your name? Is this according to your plan? What it means to me is that my whole life and all my possessions, all that I have and all that I do, must point to the glory of Jesus Christ. Because he's the owner of it all. Oh, there's another title 
There's another title. He's also the owner of the church. He's also the owner of the church. Verse number 18 says that, and he is the head of the body, the church. Skip the next two clauses and and complete the main thought. Verse number, follow, follow me in verse number 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus Christ is the owner of his church. Yes, he is. What is the church? It's a called out, assembled together group of people. It's the membership of Community Baptist Church here in this location. If you're a member of Community Baptist, now some of you, a lot of you are, are guests, you're visitors, you, you just, you're attending the service of the membership of Community Baptist Church. But within this crowd of people, there's more than just attenders who are attending. There is a group of people who are the body. The arms, the legs, the eyes, the ears of Jesus Christ. We are merged together into a living organism called Community Baptist Church. Designed by Jesus Christ and every member of the church has abilities and strengths like an eye and an ear and a nose and a foot and a hand are all different. They all have different strengths. But when you put all of the body together, it becomes a functioning unit. And you are... The body of Jesus Christ to serve him here in this geographic location to the people that live in this arena, in this area. And Jesus Christ owns this body of believers. He is the owner of this people that are met together and joined together. What does this verse tell us? It tells us he's the head. He's the head. What does the head do? The head is the brain center. We think of the head as the brains of the body. The head makes the decisions of which direction to go, what to pick up, what to say, what to, what to do. The head is the nerve, the center of the, the, the nervous system, the, the, uh, the thinking, the planning, the purposing. And what this text tells us is that the majority vote of CBC is not the determining factor. Jesus is the determining factor. And the members of CBC better pray, God, what do you want in your church? So that when the church votes on a measure, the church is saying, this is what I believe Jesus Christ wants in his church in this particular situation. Jesus is the owner of the church. He's the planner, the organizer. He's the one who determines what's going to be done. He's the one who energizes with his own life. The life of a church family to carry out the directives that he has as the head of his church. What's his role? Well, his role is that he is the head of the church, but he's also the living source of the church. Our Bible tells us that he is the beginning in verse number 18. He is the beginning. He's the one who began and gave life to the organism of his assembly of believers. Amazing. And the end result, verse number 19, tells us is that God is glorified. In him should all fullness dwell and that he might have the preeminence in all things. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. 
Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the image of God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the owner of everything that exists in his world. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the owner of Community Baptist Church. He is the head of this church, and he is the source of our life. What does that mean to us as people? What does that mean to us and how we live our lives? It means that we, as, as the children of Jesus Christ, the children of God, that the heartbeat of Jesus Christ is the most important thing to everything we do as a church family and our roles and our purposes and our plans and our services in the church of Jesus Christ. He's the owner of it all. Let him be glorified through all that we say and do. There's one final title. And it's interesting to me that the passage ends at the same place it began. You see, as soon as he mentioned his dear son, the very first thing that rolled off his tongue in verse 14 was in whom we have redemption through his blood. And I want you to notice in verse number 20, verse number 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He came back to the place where he started because there's nothing more important than the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that redeemed me from sin and forgave me of all my sins. That same blood that bought me from the slave market of sin and washed away all my sin, that same blood established peace between me and my Creator. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. Why? Because I was in enmity with Him. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Jesus Christ is the reconciler of a fallen world. A world steeped in sin. A world living for itself. A world so at loss to understand their purpose and why they were put here and who their creator is, where they came from, why they're here and where they're going. A world so deeply alienated as the enemies of God, Jesus Christ is the reconciler of a fallen world. Verse number 21 says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have he reconciled. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the one who on Calvary purchased me from sin. He's the one who wiped away the guilt by forgiving me of all my sin. And he's the one who reconciled me back to himself so that I could have peace with my God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ himself. He is the reconciler of my soul. What does that mean to you? That means every night you can lay your head down on your pillow. And you can be at peace. You can be at peace. No guilt. No stress. 
By the way, when you feel stressed, you need to stop and remember what someone once told me years and years and years and years and years ago back in Canada. It said there's enough time every day to accomplish the perfect will of God. What are you stressed out about because what you didn't get done? Why do you dis- Why do you expect more out of you than God expects out of you? <laughs> You've got enough time every day to accomplish the perfect will of God. And at the end of every day, you can lay down, put your head on your pillow. Breathe deeply and be empty of stress and worry and guilt and despair because the blood of Christ brought you peace with your Creator. What a way to live. What a Savior who brings to me such wealth, such richness in human experience. Isn't He simply amazing? This person called Jesus Christ.